Welcome to our first segment of this afternoon's program. It is Sunday, the 19th of December, 2021. Uh, it is now 1.02 p.m. in the studio. I'm your host, Kieran Murdoch. Good afternoon. Uh, the aim of our first discussion is to explore the nature and consequence of political victimization. Uh, to begin, uh, we are going to get a little bit of reaction from our guests um, as to the case involving uh, Giselle Isaac and the Board of Education. Of course, there was a recent assessed award of damages in that case, and it is a case that has been ongoing since 2014 uh, when the then Executive Secretary uh, was suspended um, and the case later progressed to uh, her claiming constructive dismissal. Uh, it took a number of twists and turns. Uh, there were other matters that uh, affected it in terms of criminal charges that were laid, pursued, a number of arrests um, until Ms. Isaac was cleared of those charges. Um, and following a, a string of recent victories in court, uh, she has now uh, obtained an assessment of damages uh, in relation to her unfair dismissal, a constructive dismissal case rather. Um, so we will discuss on this segment how victimization affects individuals, uh, the political system, our political culture, and the willingness of persons in both public and private life to do various things, take stances against those in power, um, how it affects the effective functioning of government, and how it affects the public purse. Um, and as I said, our main question for this segment is what is the true cost of victimization? Uh, the basis of that being that it was largely seen as a, a political move uh, back in 2014 to have removed her uh, in the manner that, uh, that she was removed. Uh, joining our panel for this discussion, we have uh, three persons with us this afternoon. I'm happy to have with us again uh, Mr. Anderson Carty. Uh, Mr. Anderson Carty is a management consultant specializing in business management, industrial relations, and human resource management. And he has almost 30 years of experience. Uh, he also hails from the Grays Green and Five Islands community. And he's uh, running there as an independent in the next upcoming elections, whenever those may be. Uh, good afternoon to you, Mr. Anderson Carty. How are you doing? Good afternoon, Kiran, and to my fellow panelists. And let me say good afternoon to the listening audience here in Antigua and Barbuda and elsewhere. And let me just use this occasion to wish everyone a joyous Christmas season and to encourage that we all remember the reason for the season, and that is God, our Creator, sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to the earth to bring the gift of mercy and open the gates of forgiveness after immortal man had eaten of the forbidden fruit of the Garden of Eden. So I say good afternoon to everyone. Uh, we also have joining us as well uh, Mr. Wayne Benjamin Marsh. Wayne Benjamin Marsh is an attorney at law who practices in New York, in Dominica, and in Antigua and Barbuda. Uh, we're happy to have him with us this afternoon on Zoom. Uh, good afternoon to you, Mr. Marsh. Uh, good afternoon, Kieran, and good afternoon to the nation of Antigua and Barbuda and all those listening to us. Good afternoon in particular to my wife, Kara Schillingford-Marsh, who's listening in Dominica. Thank you, and I'm ha happy to be here. And finally, we have Ms. Joan Underwood. Uh, Ms. Joan Underwood, of course, is an internationally certified senior professional in human resources. Uh, she's currently the managing director and principal consultant of Underwood Talent Development Services, Inc., which is based in Barbados. Uh, she's also a former lecturer and subject matter expert at the University of the West Indies Cavehill School of Business Executive Diploma in Management and Executive MBA Programs. Uh, her experience in the public sector includes chairing the Public Sector Transformation Advisory Committee, which was a committee established under the Baldwin-Spence administration. Uh, she's also a former president of the Antigua and Barbuda Employers Federation and has received national and regional awards uh, for her contribution to the growth and development of the private sector. Uh, good afternoon to you, Ms. Joan Underwood. How are you doing? All right, we'll try to sort that out. My apologies for that. My apologies for that. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you for the invitation. I look forward to 
you know, the contributing to this very important um, discourse on a troubling issue that affects our country and not just individuals who are the subject of the particular case at hand. Um, well, don't worry, don't worry about the Zoom thing. It, it happens from time to time. In fact, I keep forgetting to um, to put uh, either in the email or, or, or just a message before the show to the guests just to you know remind them because it does happen to all of us, um, even if I am doing something on Zoom, not as a host. Um, but Ms. Underwood, I wonder if I could begin with you. I just want to get your initial thoughts on, uh, if you zoom back to 2014, your your thoughts on the the manner of, of Ms. Isaac's dismissal in the first place and what your thoughts were back then and, and uh, years later, as things have progressed, what your thoughts are on the matter now. All right. Um, thank you for that question. And uh, in terms of what my thoughts were back in 2014, I should um, disclose that D. Giselle Isaac is a close personal friend, a schoolmate. Um, we worship together. So I was deeply affected by what happened. As an HR practitioner, I was aghast at how clumsily the matter was handled because um, they erred from from the get-go. So, for example, in placing someone on suspension and indicating that there would be an investigation and then making absolutely no contact with the individual during the course of said investigation, um, that you know, flies in the face of the principles of, of natural justice, right? How can you have an investigation involving an individual and not a single question is put to that individual? Then in terms of simply complying with the, the, the labor laws in Antigua and Barbuda, um, there is... Um, there are accepted rules and, and, and laws in terms of the duration of suspension, the maximum duration of suspension, what needs to ha happen during the course of that. And so it, from the get-go, it was obvious once she was locked out of the office after, those, uh, after the suspension period had elapsed, uh, that was indeed, as has been uh, ruled, constructive dismissal. And then it continued to go downhill from there. Um, even during the course of the suspension, the failure to respond to any of the inqu letters inquiring and seeking for, um, for the particulars, just to fail to respond to them. So, and then the, the way that the employer and other agents related to the employer played out this in a public platform while steadfastly refusing to engage Miss Isaac herself. So, um, you know, it just went bad from the beginning. And in terms of your question about my response, I was actually involved from a distance because at the time, uh, Miss Isaac was engaged by a project which I was managing, the Caribbean Leadership Project, um, which was a project funded by the Canadian government and covering 12 CARICOM countries. And she was a member of one of our technical advisory committees. And when the news broke, not just of the, the termination, the constructive dismissal, but then the, the criminal charges, I was actually requested by the Canadian principals to ask her to resign, which I declined to do because I said she has not 
been proven to have have um, engaged in any wrongdoing and so i had a tussle with my then clients and refused to be part of the further victimization and said if you guys want to ask her to resign you can do that but i definitely will not be doing it because it was apparent that it was merely a case of political victimization, mm. let which me, ought not to have been exacerbated by others getting on board. Mm. Let me bring in uh, Mr. Anderson Carty at this point. Mr. Carty, um, I want to get a sense from you. Uh, what would have been the correct process then? What would have been the correct process if, uh, let's say, um, I mean, let's be frank, if you're an incoming government um, and you lack confidence in uh, any person who is in a, 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 an executive position uh, of that nature, uh, what would have been the correct process to have uh, removed that person without all this clumsiness? Uh, and of course, it, 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 what would have been the correct process in line with the fact that you, you say you were mounting an investigation? Thank you for that question, Kiran. Um, but before I answer, I just want to say that I thought the issue today on this segment is extremely fitting for us to discuss uh, in the moment, considering we're likely on the threshold of general elections. I also think that I have some amount of uh, actual authority to speak to the issue. Uh, the cost of political victimization, consider that I, myself, have four other fellow managers and 19 former staff of the Transport Board uh, they also fall in prey to this political victimization at the hands of the ruling administration. In addition, persons would know that I also apply my profession as an industrial relations consultant and trade unionist in the industrial court, from whence the judgment on which we speak today would have emanated. But my opening salvo on the issue would be this. The devil himself lives in the system of government that we have. Sadly to say, we have inherited this political system from our colonial masters, uh, which was largely designed, I think, uh, to keep citizens subjugated to the system in order to control them. And so while the faces change from white to black, the system remains in place and is still used by our political actors to fulfill their own purposes and objectives. And we have a situation where the victor goes to spoil and uh, the losers be vanquished to the proverbial Isles of Elba to suffer humiliation, ridicule, and hunger. And so it is this same unchanged corrupt system that is grounded on rewarding political loyalty and patronage by way of plundering the state resources that must change if there's to be justice, fairness, equity at play whenever there's a change in government uh, uh, administration. However, the practical side of this argument, Kiran, is that whenever a new government administration comes to power, apart from them wanting to make room for their political supporters and financiers and lackeys, there's usually an element of resistance, uh, sometimes from the civil servants who silently or openly support the losing party, and particularly from those government employees that are hired at the whim and fancy of previous government administration. These persons we refer to as the non-established employees was created as a parallel arm of the civil service. And uh, also those to whom we may commonly refer as public officers, cabinet appointees. And they can have a real impact on sabotaging and undermining a new government and its programs and policy. And so we, uh, we do seek to resolve this type. How do we seek to resolve this type of uh, potential political impasse? Certainly, we cannot continue to go the route of victimization as the personal cost to individuals and the price tag for the nation is simply astronomical. And so 
we go to a process. We have to find that process that lends itself to having dialogue with a view to making a determination whether it's necessary for the public officer or that non-established employee to be moved from the area where they are, or if they would prefer, we could sit down and have a discussion regarding a mutual separation, because we understand that there must be some balance. The new administration must be comfortable in terms of how it moves forward, having the confidence of its employees, and also knowing that the employees have confidence in them, because the relationship cannot exist without that. And so we have to come up together as a nation which assisted or some kind of commission that would lend itself to a process where we sit down and we make a determination how do we create a win-win situation and in the case of the dgs allies as a matter clearly the correct process was not used it was bullying um, it was termination of the worst kind constructive dismissal which i will go on to explain later in the program um, uh, uh, Mr. Wayne Benjamin Marsh, um, on the topic because we are—I mean, we are—we are talking about the the, the Giselle Isaac case with the Board of Education, but we are, are more broadly discussing victimization. Uh, and Mr. Carty has very nicely led us into that discussion. Um, one of the comments I often hear uh, when it comes to victimization is, um, well, especially in cases where, for instance, you—you—it's you, an issue of employment. Um, the sort of effort that one may have to expend in terms of fighting it uh, in and of itself um, is something quite oppressive. Uh, I, and I, I, I reference the Giselle Isaac case in that, you know, the case has been going on um, for quite a while and it w was uh, sort of related to a, a number of other cases, criminal cases that have now been squashed. Um, what impact does that sort of fight, that sort of, you know, mountain to climb have on individuals who um, find themselves in these positions? Kieran, I would not want to look at the impact only as it relates to the individual. I believe the impact is much broader than individual. The impact is on the entire nation. Because putting aside the cost that that individual would have incurred, you also have to think about the collateral damage that those persons who depend upon that individual will suffer. Um, I can recall a few years ago in 1994, thereabout, when Dr. Lake was removed from the Holbiton Hospital, one of the things that came out during the course of the, the legal battles is that um, he was in the operating theater and learned that his subordinate was actually summoned to a meeting with another individual as a direct result of the matters that were being discussed to remove him as the as the um, medical director at the hospital. So when we think about this, we cannot look at solely the cost, which is oftentimes in the thousands, hundreds of thousands, but the cost to the individual. But we have to look at it in relation to the cost that it has on the on the society as a whole. So generally, you'll find that if we make a serious analysis of the situation. The cost of victimization is the loss of livelihoods, not of the only of the not only of the particular individuals, the society, and perhaps even debt. That is the cost of uh, victimization. It is something that we ought not to tolerate. It is something that happens regardless of which political party is in office, and our attitude towards that should be one, which um, my sister rightfully pointed out, is that persons has to take individual responsibility because I am not sure that 
we should sit back and allow um, persons in certain offices to use us as employees of the state, as servants to, to carry out their evil intent. So that is the cost of um, victimization. The cost is a real one that touches the entire spectrum of the society. Uh, and Ms. Joan Underwood, uh, well, two questions I'll put. I'll try and keep them brief. Number one is um, we have seen in this assessment of damages, of course, um, a, a, a component which deals with the, the a response basically to the unjustness of it. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not it would have been uh, easier on the state's pocket if they had just gone with the correct procedure in the first place. Um, there's that question. Uh, and then there's also what is your perception of the other effects of victimization? We've talked about, of course, um, the loss of livelihoods and how that affects people and individuals. But what are some of the other effects of victimization? Those two questions. Whether it would have been cheaper right, so, uh, and the, the other effects mm -hmm. of victimization. All right, let me start with some of the other effects of victimization. And uh, again, looking at it at a societal level, and it's very important that we don't just telescope it down to the individual, because then people can become, you know, very disengaged. But one of the unintended consequences of, of this type of activity is that the public service becomes a less attractive career prospect for high caliber individuals. Because if I know that as a professional that I operate at the women fancy of a political directorate who can victimize me at will with no um, apparent adverse outcomes for them personally, because it's the taxpayers that bear this burden, then you, you are severely handicapped in terms of the quality of people who will be willing to consider the public service as a viable option for employment. And, you know, on this very program, I'm on record as responding to a question from another host, what did I consider to be the biggest threat to the nation moving forward in terms of governance? And it's the failure of public institutions. Because if you do not have individuals who are capable, who are competent, and who have the confidence in themselves and the, the legal and regulatory framework within which they operate to stand up to the political directorate, we will continue to see instances like this replicate. Something else that I want to point out, um, it, it is important for the public to be aware of the fact that D. Giselle Isaac's um, hiring as the executive secretary in the Board of Education, she was not hired as a political um, appointee. She was not hired by the United Progressive Party. She was actually hired under the Lester Bird administration as a professional without any political underpinnings to that hiring decision. So therefore, a when a perception arises, rightly or wrongly, subsequent to that contractual relationship which the Board of Education had with her, to then say that because of her political affiliation, perceived allegiance, etc., that one would seek to remove her, then that is why we have laws to prevent those types of abuses. So that brings me to the, the first question that you asked, if it would have been better just to do it the right way. Again, we have laws. This is not the rule of man. We, we are a country that has laws, right? In the event that your employer comes to the 
conclusion that you are no longer or you are not performing your duties in a satisfactory manner, the labor court lays out the remedies that you have at your disposal. So you can go through the process of giving them notice that they are not meeting the, the, the required performance standards. You have a certain amount of time you can give them to rectify the deficiency in their performance. And in the event that they fail to do so, you can proceed to termination. Unless, of course, what whatever has happened, the misconduct is so egregious that it warrants summary dismissal. So there are avenues that are provided for in the law. but. And of course, um, we had um, Mr. Carty mention that you can also go to the table. I don't know if she was on a fixed term contract or if it was permanent employment. But in the event that it's a fixed term contract, you can go, both parties can go to the table and negotiate a mutually acceptable parting of the ways where there would likely have to be compensation for the unexpired term in the contract. But you cannot just on a women of fancy and because someone doesn't have your favor in a matter unrelated to their execution of their functions, you cannot decide just to remove them. And I would acknowledge the carve-out for political appointees, but I've already established she was not in that role as a political appointee. Well, let me ask you um, if you if you could add any more to that, because, um, I mean, part of this discussion is that aspect of how does an incoming government deal with persons who are or are perceived to be um, uh, political appointees. Um, now, you would have clarified uh, the nature of her, her work uh, prior um, to... Uh, well, prior to, 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 the, to the UPP administration specifically. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm curious as to whether or not before 2014 it was apparent. I mean, she, if, I'm, I'm correct if I'm, uh, Ms. Isaac was at some point the Speaker of the House, right? That is not a political appointment. Well, it is an antique about you, though. Well, there's a perception, okay? But it is not a political appointment. Okay. All right. Well, I just want yeah, I just wanted to get that out of the way. I just wanted to to, to get a take on that, uh, Mr. Anderson Carty. Um, uh, a follow up question in terms of um, I think we, we we talked about how the victimization broadly impacts the public service and persons' willingness to 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 find and and to hold a career in the public service. Um, I'm wondering to what extent does it create a, a culture of um, as Miss Miss Underwood would have alluded to a culture of uh, basically fear. Uh, persons in certain positions um, unwilling to uh, uh, take a stance on principle or perhaps take a stance uh, uh, to toe the line of the law uh, because of that fear that, um, you know, one could be sacked unjustly and victimized? Uh, well, let's let's put into context the case of, of Dame Giselle Isaac. And uh, persons who may not know the history of this matter, um, who is Dame D. Giselle Isaac? She's an intelligent, bright, articulate, and professional Antiguan woman. I believe she would have dedicated perhaps more than half of her life to public service, from which this Twin Island nation has been the direct beneficiary. Indeed, I believe she still has a lot to offer as a proven sound public administrator of a statutory board. The Board of Education, from which this nation's youth and uh, those adults pursuing higher learning have benefited under her watch for almost 14 years. Now, the nation would have seen general elections in June 2014, where the Labour Party was swept to power in a landslide victory. 
And by July of 2014, the executive secretary was unceremoniously suspended without valid reason and or due process as set out in law or good industrial relation practices. She was handed a letter, I believe, by a subordinate which suspended her for 28 days. She got no specific reason for the suspension and subsequently a report circulated in the public that painted a picture of malfeasance in office. She had absolutely no opportunity, Karan, to know the allegations against her beforehand, nor was she given a chance to counter them in any disciplinary hearing. The report, which she also never received, made it into the public domain. And I believe this was deliberate and it set about to taint her reputation in the eyes of her peers. Upon her return to work after 28 days, she found the doors to her office padlocked and she was sent on further suspension. It was very clear by then that the employer no longer wished to be bound by the contract of employment. And so acting on advice, she claimed constructive dismissal after that action became clear. And what is constructive dismissal? It is where an employer's action makes it abundantly clear that they no longer wish to be bound by the contract of employment or in circumstances where the employer commits an act against an employee that even by the standard of the officious bystander is so egregious that the employee may reasonably consider himself or herself as constructively dismissed, no longer in the employee. Mr. Carty, let me jump in and here. So we had that situation. I wanted to jump in. Uh, sorry to pause you. I wanted to jump in. Uh, if I could flip the, the focus a little bit. Um, you could feel free to continue, but I, I want to flip the focus again to, to uh, interject sure. with another question, which is whether or not you think that the current, um, uh, I wouldn't know how to call it, the, generally the makeup of the public service. I mean, you, you described a, a, a parallel system of an established civil service and a non-established sector. And I know that has been a, an issue of major debate in Antigua and Barbuda along the lines of public service reform for the longest while. Uh, but... Um, uh, to what extent do you think that there should be reform to create um, uh, 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 a class of public servants who understand that their appointment is, uh, 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 and, and I wouldn't even be talking about uh, uh, a, a position like the executive secretary of the board of education. That's more professional, but but women, yeah, women yeah, that, are, that you pretty much come and go at the administration. And, and, and again, I'm not saying that that would be something that would apply in this case to uh, Ms. Isaac. But we're, we're broadly talking about victimization here. Um, that we should create a, a, a class of public servants like that and that we should move others into a, a position where they're not so much at the, 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 you know, the utter disposal of, of, of the cabinet. I accept um, that the time is long past for us to have that discussion and together as a nation, we decide how that issue can be tackled. Now, we understand that the public sector uh, that comprises the established arm of government and the non-established arm of government. Again, it was a system created to maintain political patronage and loyalty. And that is something that we have to address. And uh, it, it, it requires broad-based consultation, I believe, and in particular for those positions which are substantial positions that can impact the success or failure of a government, a new government administration, that there ought to be uh, somewhere in, in the equation, a situation where the two parties can sit down and come to some proper determination. A commitment of loyalty, I promise I will not be a hindrance to administration 
or I think it is better for me to take a package and go, um, or uh, submit myself to some equity um, commission uh, that could negotiate between the two bodies a separation that would be a win-win for both. Um, so yes, those things uh, need to be encouraged and discussed mm -hmm. widely um, for a decision. But I want to do, go back uh, to conclude the point I was addressing for the benefit of the public, um, Quran, that after that action against the Giselle Isaac, the government then through the engagement of high powered and highly paid lawyers, and this was paid by the nation and of course, the then minister went about to compose and create what I call a fictitious narrative of wrongdoing by the good dame. And their actions were simply preposterous. I think it was cowardly, and I think it is egregious to say the least. And then of course, there was the effort, I believe, to bankrupt her by dragging her to the court system, from the industrial court to the court of appeal to the Privy Council and back to the industrial court. And then they conceded that the action was wrong in the first place. And so it is the action of the cabinet of Antigua and Barbuda. So the people of Antigua and Barbuda understand is now costing the taxpayers of Antigua and Barbuda in excess of 600,000. I know the, the news has been reporting punitive measures, um, a little over a quarter million, but the actual price tag, and I have a copy of that judgment. In fact, I was in court when the assessment was delivered. And it is over $600,000 uh, that was awarded to D. Giselle Isaac, not to mention the attorney fees and bills coming from the government to their own high-powered lawyer. So we're probably looking at close to $800,000, $900,000 in actual payout um, for this matter. And clearly, it is a cost to the people of Antigua and Barbuda. And we must be concerned. And if you have regard to the transport board matter, there has always been there's also been a ward to the managers um that is in excess of almost a million dollars and that has yet to be paid again it is taxpayers that will be paying that i will be paying myself when the court uh, eventually comes to that decision my matters with the appeals court and certainly the result would be similar as in the case of the Gizad Isaac. We have to address these issues mm -hmm. frontally. Uh, Mr. Wayne Benjamin Marsh, any 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 um, uh, uh, comment you'd want to make at this point in response <coughs> to anything yeah, that's been I said? I just want to agree. Yeah, I just want to agree with the positions taken by the fellow my fellow, fellow panelists. But in addition to that, I wanted to look at how do we address this issue of victimization. And one of the things I heard coming out from the panel is that um perhaps there should be institution well reform and looking at how we appoint people and hire people etc 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 i want to suggest that at the end of the day it has to be a matter of personal responsibility for example um we have many commissions around antigua etc and we would have heard these commissions crying out that listen i want to investigate but i cannot i do not have the money so it starts sometimes not only with um reform measures but personal responsibility and that is why i will leave here with tremendous respect for miss underwood because you cannot you cannot be in a position where you're working for the government and you are going to say because the minister says so i will do so it should not and ought not to work so and what we would be then doing if we go down the road of um trying to have persons swear to this we are trying we would be essentially placing the blame placing the responsibility on these 
persons to really um, fight these things for us. But it should not be one set of people, it should be the entire community, the nation coming to a point where we accept that this is wrong, we ought not to do it, because at the end of the day, it's not UPP, ALP suffers, it's Antigua and Barbie that suffers. Until we come to that recognition, we could try all the reforms we want, it will not work. Uh, and I'll ask you further. Um, I mean, Ms. Isaac was clearly subject to significant derision uh, from members of the, the current government in public. Um, I, I mean, there was actually, it actually became uh, a significant part of the dismissal of the criminal charges, the fact that the Prime Minister, um, as he often does, uh, was making public statements on, on the matter of, of, of the case and um, said something to the effect that it was really indeed two, two members of his cabinet who, who pursued um, uh, this, 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 the, the, whatever it is that there was alleged, that it was um, n not particularly a, a consensus, uh, but that it was two specific members of his cabinet who, who were uh, committed to, to having those, those issues uh, pushed into court. Um, and of course, there have been a number of other statements. There was at some point the, uh, the, the publication of, of personal information from her. That was again the PM, if I understand correctly. I, I swear I read a story like that. Um, so that I mean, it's it's, it's quite clear <laughs> that you know it, it, there's no there's no hiding it. You know, we we, we victimize people politically, um, and I'm getting from what you're saying, Mr. Marsh, that really and truly there needs to be a cultural change as opposed to simply establishing more institutions uh, to do X or to do Y. Uh, it would make a, a significant difference if those institutions are not populated by people who are uh, themselves, you know, not willing to to do what is right. Uh, I, I'm I'm correct in understanding that. Absolutely, absolutely correct. Um, but to go further, in relation to, in response to what you just said about the utterances of the prime minister and so on, um, so every time I think about the prime minister, I think that he's a politician, and politicians do what politicians do. So, I just feel that, in addition to persons taking personal responsibility, the dream—I notice I said dream—the dream of having these persons being personally liable for their actions. Um, we will not get very far. So it's, it's perhaps that perhaps that is the real answer. But in our system of government governance, in the, the way in which our laws work, I don't think that will ever happen. What really needs to happen is back to square one, where we ourselves have the have the personal integrity to say, "Hey, listen, I am not going to be a part of this." That's my answer, I think. And yes, I feel sorry for Miss. Um, Miss Isaacs, um, she would have gone through hell and back. I could, I, I, I surely know that because as an attorney, you come across persons who often have no money to fight. And Mr. Carty was so right that the whole idea seems to have been to totally bankrupt this individual so that she will eventually capitulate and they'll walk away scot-free. It is sad. It is a very, very sad day for the nation of Antigua. And we ought all to be embarrassed at the actions of the government and those persons who were involved. Now, I want to go a little bit further in that the, the, the statements from the prime minister in that um, it was overzealous ministers, etc., etc. Well, the overzealous ministers are not the one who make the final decision as it relates to laying charges and, and defending this action and so on. They're not the ones. So we need a cultural shift regardless of the position which we hold in the government and the governance of the country, we need to take responsibility for our actions. We cannot hide behind the cloak that I'm working for the government and, and I'm acting on behalf of the government.
Well, in that, I, I take it that you're saying that, of course, um, we, we, we have to look to other persons such as the police and the, the, the authorities responsible for prosecution um, in terms of those matters. And also, of course, persons in the, in, in the Ministry of Legal Affairs who might uh, pursue certain issues. Um, yeah, let me let, let me, me let, just, I was going to say, let me go let on. Me, a, let me, let, well, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Let me just let me let me just let me just say something to you. As an attorney, whenever a client comes to me, I assess their case and I say to them, listen, this is a waste of your money. This is a waste of my time. Forget about this. Go and fix the situation. It cannot be simply because you're being directed to do something. You do it. So everybody has to take responsibility. Uh, I'm going to go on a final round now because we have just about uh, two, three minutes left. Uh, Miss Underwood, anything that you'd want to add as we, we, we uh, wrap up this segment? Yes, I want to endorse everything that Mr. Marsh would have said and um, to, to shift the focus towards solutions. And I think one of the avenues, in addition to what he said about personal integrity and accountability, etc., I do think that there's work for us to do in terms of our institutional frameworks and uh, in terms of administrative law, which would provide some recourse for persons who have been... Um, on the receiving end of mistreatment from the executive branch of government. It is important for us to give them some remedies that don't require them to have to go to private attorneys and spend money which some people simply may not have. So therefore, it's important for us as a nation to decide that we need to build safeguards into the system. I'd like to, in just to touch on the example of Jamaica. So we know that we have an ombudsman here. Jamaica also had an ombudsman, but moved away from that system and introduced what's called a public defender. And in Jamaica, the public defender, actually uh, someone who feels that they have um, been their rights have been violated by the executive arm of government can go to the public defender, which is independent and has um, investigators not part of the police, but who report specifically to that unit, who then investigate the matter and can refer the matter to the courts for further action to be taken. So again, that would be in terms of solutions. In addition to what Mr. Marsh said, I think we need to be looking at putting institutions in place to safeguard the rights of the citizenry so that we don't have politicians bragging that they're going to use the institutions of state to bankrupt citizens who do not meet with their favor. Um, final words, uh, Mr. Anderson Carty, briefly. Thank you. And my final word would be the responsibility or the responsible party is the cabinet and or the cabinet minister who has been handed the individual portfolio. Yet at the end of the day, there's absolutely no personal or collateral cost to them when these judgments are delivered that cost the state having regard to what we see as deliberate acts of victimization. So I ask who will bell the cat in cabinet when they make these decisions to victimize persons who commit themselves to nation building. And I will end on that note. Thank you for having me and good afternoon to my fellow panelists. Uh, and Mr. Wayne Benjamin Marsh, uh, final words. Yes, final words. I wish to suggest to the public that the cost of the actions of those persons in public, well, public office, politicians in particular, should be 
a loud voice being shouted, shouted, a loud voice or song being sung at the polls. In other words, when they act like that, the public should respond by putting them out of office. Uh, with that, we're going to end this segment here. I want to say thank you to all three of our guests this afternoon. We were joined by uh, the last speaker you heard there was Mr. Wayne Benjamin Marsh. He's uh, an attorney at law. He practices in New York, Dominica, and Antigua and Barbuda. Uh, we were also joined by Mr. Anderson Carty, a management consultant specializing in business management, industrial relations, and human resource management. Uh, and as well, we were joined by Ms. Joan Underwood. Uh, she is an internationally certified senior professional in human resources, and she's currently the managing director and principal consultant of Underwood Talent Development Services Incorporated. Uh, thanks to all three of you for joining us this afternoon.